Hello and welcome to The Stack. Today we have passion with It's a Passion Thing, a title about people driven by passion and redefining success. We have Glory, a beautiful football publication, and staying in the sport field, also a new booklet showcasing the best of tennis photography. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show in Vienna to speak with Sandra Reichel and Karen Novozamsky from It's a Passion Thing. The title has been featured in The Stack before, but now they are back with issue 7, with plenty of design and editorial changes, and plans for expansion. They both tell me more about the changes in It's a Passion Thing. Karin Novozansky and Sandra Reichel, welcome to Monaco 24 to talk about It's a Passion Thing. It's a return for both of you here on the stack. First of all, there's been an impressive redesign for issue 7. I want to know more about why did you decide to do such a redesign? And I think you worked immensely, visually and content-wise as well. Well, I started the magazine three plus years ago and then Karin came in with issue 3. And I think with that already, the dynamics changed a little bit. Me being like from the design perspective, Karen being more on the strategy side of things. And we saw that the interview format we had before, which was like purely interviews, right? So the issues like one to six were interviews only, basically. We found out that basically every interview had at least two or three or four more stories to tell from tips and tricks to like recommendations. And it always felt like we had to cut them off to some extent. So I think it was a natural evolution for us to then say, no, we just want to give the space it needs. And then we started to write new formats and from there it kind of evolved. And all of a sudden the content and the vision of the content didn't really fit into the design any longer. So it was like a shoe that didn't fit that well anymore. So we decided to completely redo it. But it's like the strong nature of Karen pushing things like that. (laughs) (laughs) But it was not, well, yeah, it's a big thing to do, to sit down and to really throw everything overboard and, and, and allow yourself to start from scratch. It also shows the strength of Sandra of, of allowing this because it was really her baby and I was grabbing the baby, you know, and shaking it. <laughs> and normally mothers don't reply very well if you do that. So I think it was also necessary because we only had these long formats of interviews and now we have these little bits and pieces which gives, you know, the reader a different rhythm in going through the magazine. So that I think was also important to us. I think one thing that perhaps didn't change, but that's a good thing, is is the type of people you you speak to. I mean, very interesting people that are doing something interesting in their lives as entrepreneurs, you know, beautiful brands as well. I, I guess that focus didn't change. I guess that's what remains from the old version of It's a Passion thing, right? Absolutely. I mean, we always say that it's a magazine about people driven by passion and redefining success. And this is really what we are looking for. And once you start talking to people, you find out that everyone has an amazing story to tell. 
and that's the core and we always we sit down with the people if possible face to face and have a deep conversation because we love to have that and you find so much more than you could have wished for in the beginning because you write down some questions you think about how's the interview going but then you if you really take your time like one two hours to sit down there's so much more stories that you couldn't have asked for And one thing that I find quite interesting here on the stack, we, we do have a couple of magazines. They have no advertising. They have different business models. That used to be the case of it's a passion thing. But now there advertising is there. And I think you worked beautifully. But what made you change, actually, to uh, accepting advertising? I have to say, it really did match with the content of the magazine. It was not something like, oh, that's a bit weird and strange. We have a background in advertising, so we have very mixed feelings for advertising, but we love advertising. This is why we started our career in advertising, and because it's a, it's a craft of telling stories in a compelling way. And this is something we love, and we think advertising that is well done and executed can be a beautiful source of inspiration and can be a, also a welcome break in a magazine between the stories. And I think it's also about new formats. I think, of course, the classical advertising, like the, the one-pager or the two-pager, still have their space they can live in. But I think also with uh, reconsidering the content, the structure, the design, we also came up with new formats that are, to us, maybe a little bit more honest, straightforward, and closer to the brands and the people we talk to. And I mean, it also evolved through talking to those people who actually have amazing brands and actually have amazing communication we really want to put in there. So it's not like, okay, we need to cover the first 20 to 30 pages with like printed ads so we can survive, but to have like a true belief in additional benefit to the readers that it makes sense and it's curated as well. So it's maybe not as much advertising as it could be, but like you said, it's chosen and, and I think it makes a good fit to us, to our content and basically for the readers. And am I right to say that the brand is going through some sort of expansion as well, that perhaps it plans to become more than only the magazine itself? And if so, if you can tell me a bit more about what, what does that involve? That involves... On the one hand, the digital part, I mean, we did the redesign of the magazine. Now we do the redesign of all the digital assets, which is the newsletter, which is the website, of course. And then we are also thinking about... Well, we have been doing products, mm -hmm. right? We have been doing collaborations with actually people and brands. We have been interviewing because we actually did get along so well that we did come out with like limited editions. And we always had big fun doing that. So we want to explore that more. That's for sure. And I mean, now that we've been in this game for a couple of years, we have so much footage that is not really going into the magazine, nor will it go into the magazine, but maybe it will go into other publications that has the same core values, but maybe look more like a book than a magazine. Mm -hmm. So Maybe an exclusive here on the stack. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, keep me informed about that. And also, I have to say, you're both, I believe, based in Vienna. But the magazine to me feels, of course, there's 
Austrian touches. You know, there's a lovely article about hospitality. Vienna is mentioned there. But do you see yourself as an international magazine? You know, it's it's in English, as well, I have to say, not in German. How do you see that divide between your Austrian readers, the international ones? Or who do you want actually to reach? Well, I started when I came back after having lived abroad, actually. I lived in Stockholm. I lived mm. in in New York for quite a while. And when I came back, I really came back to Vienna because of the law for the city. But my whole work life had changed for years when I published the first issue. Like my main friend circle and like even clients back then were international. And Austria being a rather small country for me... It was right or clear to communicate in English, to write in English, and to also establish an English reading readership. And also the stories did, ever since we published the first issue, stories come flying towards us, like from all around the world. And it doesn't really matter what country they're in, what nationality they're from, what language they even speak. We have like journalists that write uh, French and, and Italian and then we translate it because I think it shouldn't change who we pick and who we want to talk to nor should it change the story or where we come from. So we love Austria, we're proud of Austria definitely, but it was always a very international classes we had on and approach we were looking for because I think those stories we're aiming to to tell are like all over the place. So doesn't really come with a specific border, so to speak. Thank you both, Sandra and Karen. Issue 7 of It's a Passion Thing is out now. And now, Monaco's Jack Simpson spoke to the co-founders of Glory, a football magazine that appreciates fine photography, high-end design and inspires travel. Andrew Long, head of copy, and Lee Nash, head of design, speak to the inspiration of this football mag with a luxury twist, embracing the sport as a cultural and geopolitical phenomenon, and recent issues on Ukraine, Norway, and Sevilla. We started this around 2016, and how it came about is we've got a mutual photographer friend, a guy called Ryan Mason, And he posted on Facebook just one day out of the blue, thinking about setting up a football magazine, really keen to do something which is a bit more high-end, really playing off the aesthetics of his own photography. Is anyone interested? And then as luck would have it, I happened to see the message way before any of my other fellow designer colleagues and peer group and pretty much got in there first and said, it's definitely something I'm interested in. Let's meet for a coffee. So we caught up. He sort of went through his vision, which was very much... We were big fans of Serial Magazine at the time, which I'm, I'm sure you guys are aware of. Very high-end kind of aesthetic travel magazine, if you like. And we thought, well, there's almost this sweet spot to be had between almost Serial Magazine and like the Soccer Bibles and some of the other indie mags that were out at the time. So we kind of went away. We we sort of had the concept of what we we knew we wanted to create. And then the hardest thing was coming up with a name and we had some terrible names Mainly from my side, like I want to call it things like Pushkas and like <laughs> really bizarre kind of football surnames. And it was Ryan who actually came up with the, the name Glory just because it, it sort of epitomized what every fan strives for. And it just seemed to fit really well with this slightly higher end publication that we were pitching it at. So at, at the time, there probably wasn't anything too similar to what we were doing, obviously, since, since we've been going now for probably eight years. A lot of indie magazines have sprung up and there's a lot more in our space. But at the time, yeah, it was, it was very much 
trying to find that niche more than anything. And within probably two months of coming up with the idea, we found ourselves pitch side at a Faroe Islands qualifier against Romania. <laughs> it was it was the whole thing was was a bit bizarre and it kind of took us by surprise just how quickly things move, especially once you're within this indie magazine stroke footballing world, how you sort of find yourself just moving with it and moving really quickly. So Faroe was the first like, issue. We launched that and haven't really looked back since, to be honest. That's amazing. It's incredible how it takes a world of its own and you get taken along for the ride, even though it was, it was your creation at the start. I love how Glory embraces football as a cultural and a political phenomenon, as, as well as a form of entertainment. It's something that can define and embody both cities and countries and, and therefore people's travels. Do you feel a responsibility to tell these stories and talk about football from its geopolitical and cultural contexts? No, I certainly do. I have long been interested in the sociology of football and, as you say, the kind of the political, the community, the cultural aspect of it and how this game encapsulates so much more than just being a game or a sport and it means so many different things to different people. And the thing that I love about Glory is it gives us the space to allow all of these different stories to be told by the different people. So you get the Seville issue is in the voices of people who live and breathe football in Seville. The Milan issue that's coming up is very much the same, but it's slightly different because it's Milanese instead of Seville. And I love that aspect of it. I was just saying the other day, I've been a Norwich City fan for my entire life. I've been a season ticket holder. I used to dream of us getting to the Premier League and then celebrate us getting to the Premier League. And that was kind of the be all and end all for me. And the introduction of VAR, the insane amount of money that is now in the Premier League has completely distorted the way I feel about both Norwich and the Premier League. But through things like Glory and through meeting all of these people, I've never loved football more than I do right now because it's so much more than what most people see as football. The Premier League, the kind of the World Cup, this sort of high-end, top-tier football, I don't think is is really a true picture of what football really is for most people who live and breathe it. It's much more about the Faroe Islands and how they, they might never qualify for a major tournament but they're so passionate about the game. yeah. And the same in Seville, Betis and Sevilla, when we were interviewing people at both clubs, were kind of resigned to the fact that they were very unlikely to ever topple Real Madrid or Barcelona. Mm. But that isn't important. It's not about winning trophies and all of those things. It's about the community and being able to tell those stories in the kind of the less glamorous footballing countries and cities is the, one of the things for me that makes Glory really special. The recent Ukrainian issue was just a stunning magazine with all the profits going to the Ukraine crisis appeal. What were the challenges of producing such a powerful and beautifully put together issue for charity? Well, I guess the, the biggest challenge was obviously that was one that me and Lee couldn't easily get out to. Mm. So we could actually go and be in country and interview people face to face. COVID kind of helps in that regard because so many people are now used to 
Zoom meetings and meeting remotely that we were still able to interview people who were in Ukraine without having to go to Ukraine ourselves. We were really lucky in that we had some contributors who were already in Ukraine or were going to Ukraine to take photos and be there and kind of experience the return of football in the country. So we were able to lean on people who were there quite heavily. Mm. But again, the kind of the joy of it was being able to give people a voice and give people the chance to tell their story in their words. And I think that's where the Ukraine edition is really powerful because we had people who were talking about going to games in 10 years ago with their dad and how different the experience now of being stuck in a metro station because the air raid sirens are going off or going to a game. And as you go in, there's a collection for the armed forces and you know at any point the air raid siren might go off and the game just stops and you all have to scurry inside. But football goes on. There is this sense of we want to get back to normality. This is a way that we can be together. And I think, I don't know who describes it, but somebody says football is the most important of the least important things. And that was one of the things that really came across in the Ukraine edition was people were just desperate to get back to football even though they acknowledged that it didn't really matter yeah there was just some beautiful writing throughout i know one of the pieces you did andy where you were talking to an ex-ultra turned director of his local football club and he was explaining how the drummer from the fan section he was walking into the stadium and he was no longer there and you throughout the issue you were talking to people that were fighting on the front lines or had lost people on the front lines and it it was just a really beautiful way a really good lens uh football was a really good lens to look at just the sadness that the wars created how did you deal with that yeah and that's one of my favorite pieces actually and i've got to give a bit of credit to lee with that in terms of the photography that we got for lee to kind of pull that quote out where he talks about the drummer from the ultras no longer being there because now he's dead and to have that overlaid against the photo of the fans and the ultras singing and stuff yeah it's just it's so powerful i i find myself looking at that quite often because we're all football fans we've all been to games and it war is kind of you're kind of too far removed from it it doesn't almost feel real yeah and that really brings it home in terms of how powerful that is and again so we had some help with some people who are translating with that interview with artem and who helped us kind of write it up. A guy called Andrew Todos, who is a London-based journalist who follows Ukrainian football, and a guy called Ray Vick, who's in Ukraine and in uh, Kyiv. And it was really powerful to be able to speak to him with them and kind of get that real kind of first-hand experience of what this is like at the moment. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean... Also, the the thing that people need to know about Glory that stands out is your focus on a particular country in each issue. And as you say, out today, the severe smaller zine where you do your little city stories as well. Why do you think it's important to focus on one particular location? It all kind of started when we were trying to find our niche, I guess. So when, when we first thought and we were kind of pulling together ideas of what Glory could be, what it could become, we were so overwhelmed by the amount of football journalism that was already out there so much of which was just really disposable as well every day you're just swamped with stories from 
mainly obviously the elite uh, teams, but there is very few people really focusing on world football, but especially like bringing it into like a key focus. So we sort of stumbled across it as a concept and then sort of ran with it, to be honest. But what that means is that it enables us to really get under the skin of every country or every city that we go to. It gives us a, a campus to talk to aspects of that country, that culture, the fans from every corner of, of, of that country itself. Whereas I think if it was a slightly broader issue, bringing in other things, it, we've never really managed to get a really comprehensive overview of, I, th I think, what we were trying to achieve. So as I said, the Ferris was the first one and we've sort of run with it since then, but it's just something that I think resonates really well with our readership. It's because it is a little bit different. It also makes our editions quite collectible as well. Once yeah. someone has one edition, they're like, okay, well, what else have Laurie done? And one point as well, which is probably one of the most important points is we set out to create glory, to inspire people to travel and to experience football and cultures that they may not usually have. A bit of escapism, if you like. So yeah. by being able to create country-focused issues, which are really random locations. I mean, how many people go to Faroe Islands or Kosovo, into Helsinki? We've pretty much done all of Scandinavia. We find ourselves in some, some really odd places, but our job, if you like, is to, to try and inspire people to then just book flight tickets and go see HB Torshavin or some of these crazy teams and experience what we're experiencing, almost following our footsteps. So yeah. I think that's why the country focus issues work really well. And then we're now starting to branch out into sister publications as well, which is our city stories, which is where we may not be at a destination for much longer than maybe two, three days. But what we can do is almost have a snapshot of what it's like to be within that city and that culture and, and some of the important games. So it's something which we've landed upon and we've ran with and it, and it seems to work. And we continue with the sport team here on the stack. It's Tannis this time. Tannis in Photographs is a new project by Cedar Passori. It's a booklet showcasing the best of tennis photography with the best pictures from the sport in 2022. From the iconic photo of Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal crying in Federer's last match to the success of young Spanish player Carlos Alcaraz. Cedar tells me more about the project. Cedar Passori, welcome to Monaco 24. A pleasure talking to you. Cedar, of course, I have here your publication, Tennis in Photographs, which is great looks great amazing photography we'll talk a bit more about the project but first tell me more about your experience in publishing i presume this is not your first venture in the field right yeah thank you so much for having me i have previously been in media i used to work at complex magazine and was their art and design editor for a few years and after that i ventured more into the corporate side of things brands like nike and Jordan and we transfer and a few others. So currently I'm freelance and that gives me the flexibility to explore personal projects like these. You say personal projects. So I presume you have a kind of a strong passion for tennis then as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think I've always been a fan, but I just, to be honest, didn't follow it as closely until recent years in terms of, you know, on a daily, sometimes hourly basis. 
And I would say that, you know, I, in full transparency, got on TikTok and started connecting with other tennis fans and just social media in general. And it gave me a different perspective on tennis and media and the total admiration that you can have online versus when I was in a media job, you sort of temper that with a sense of, you know, the bigger picture and a bigger audience. So yeah, I, I love tennis and I, you know, go to as many tournaments as I can. I love the fact that you mentioned, you know, social media, you, you do have a popular account there. But it's nice that you also kind of realize that actually it's nice to do a product in print as well, because you could have easily just stayed in the online sphere. But tell us about why have you decided to do a print product, which I'm actually holding here in my hands. I love the format. But tell us oh, your connection with print. Why did you want it to do in print? Yeah, I think I always basically, you know, 2022 and tennis happened and as we see on social media and just in our day-to-day -day lives, we move on very quickly. <laughs> and I think print helps us stop for a second and reflect. Of course, because it was also photography-based and I have a background in you know, our history and photography through my education, I knew that unfortunately digital just wouldn't be able to do the photographs justice and the work of both the photographers and the athletes. So the paper choice was very intentional. Uh, I wanted it to feel soft, but also heavy. I had picked up a, a booklet actually at Hauser and Worth a few years ago in Los Angeles. They have like a really nice bookstore. And I noticed that they had these sort of premium booklet <laughs> formats. To me, they feel very approachable. They're not too heavy. You know, you're not going to get cut. You can just throw it in your bag. And like I was saying before, this idea of being like a super fan, I wanted to balance that with some of the more serious tennis talk. So I think just to do the photography and athletes justice, it needed to be a print product. Well, and, and you talk about the paper as well, because I mean, the quality of the image here on publication is very kind of clear. There's a high quality. So I can see, you, you know, you definitely look for the right paper to do that because it could have been tennis in photographs, but then the quality perhaps not as good, but that's definitely not the case. Yeah, I think for some reason, I just wanted it to feel soft. And of course, I had, you know, other booklets in mind. And, you know, people have asked me, what is the, you know, is it a magazine? Is it a zine? Is it a booklet? And I think it can be any of them. I think it's kind of fun to be in this in-between space. You know, mm -hmm. it's not necessarily short form. It's not long form. As a writer, I could have written 10,000 words about each photograph, but I thought that would be less approachable and maybe overshadow the photographs. So it was nice just based on my experience, but also based on being a consumer of media to just take a step back, think about what I see on social media, think about some of the trends that are maybe changing the way we consume things and the way we consume sports for sure. And think about what would a happy medium look like? And then of course, without ads. <laughs> and I think this 35 page, six by nine inch, soft, not too light, 12 images does justice to a season and a moment without overdoing it, if that makes sense. And it was a brilliant year for tennis, as you mentioned. I mean, especially the cover, you could have chosen so many things. But I love the fact you chose uh, Carlos Alcaraz. It's such a sweet cover as well, such a happy 
kind of enjoyful. Are you a fan? You wanted to avoid, of course, you could have done, you know, of course, Federer crying, you know, that another iconic picture, which is in actually in the in the booklet. But tell us about the cover choice. Was it an easy one or uh, tell me more? Yeah, that's a great question. And to be honest, I did have another photograph in mind, but it was of Serena Williams at practice at mm. the US Open. And it just showed this beautiful moment of her swing and all of the gems that she had gotten placed in her hair. And it was just honestly, it might have even been one of the images that made me want to do this because I wasn't sure how many people had seen that image, as well as so many others that I later found. But that was too expensive. And I think I wanted to think about what the future of tennis might be and maybe manifest some themes, like you said. So champagne celebration isn't necessarily a daily occurrence for tennis. It does happen. And I actually was there when Carlos Alcaraz won the Madrid Open, beating Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and Alexander Zverev back-to-back. It was a phenomenal, historic moment for a 19-year-old teenager. And then, of course, he won the U.S. Open a few months later. And I think his joy and his spirit and the way he plays are such a good omen for the future, even though, of course, we do feel sadness over the fact that players like Serena Williams and Roger Federer, that era of tennis is ending so I think Carlos represents the future and, and I love the photo. It's a little messy, it's youthful. It does it's not the first type of photo you think of with tennis, and I that's what I wanted. And what about the photographers themselves? I mean, do do you follow someone in particular or or I mean, were they happy when they were approached, you know, to be in the booklet? Yeah, it was a mix. Some of the photos I just licensed from websites where I could do so. But there were a few that I really wanted to include, and those presented a challenge because these photographers are following both the men's and women's tours constantly, and they are not always available to respond to a DM or email. So the photographers I did really want to include were Ella Ling, who took that iconic photograph of Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal crying and holding hands at Labor Cup. I didn't know if I could get it. I looked, you know, where can I license it? And we had a discussion, you know, on social media and and she licensed it to me. And this was around the time that, you know, CNN and ESPN were making it one of their photos of the year. So very gracious of Ella, a British photographer. Then I wanted to include Corinne Debril, the French photographer who just takes the most brilliant, artful photos of the men's tour. But I actually really loved that photo she took of Serena and I just thought it would be interesting because we are just used to seeing more of her photos of the male players. And then the third photographer I really wanted to include was Robert Prange, who is, I think, like kind of the official women's tour photographer and contributed two photos of pairs of players. And he was very gracious as well, despite being very busy. So it was a mix of avenues. It <laughs> took me into conversations I don't think I would have had previously but it was really fun thank you very much Cedar. you can find out more on tennisinphotos.com that's it for this week's show my thanks to our editor Adam Heaton if you have any comments or queries feel free to write to me Fernando at fpandmonaco.com we're back next Saturday at 10am London time meanwhile you can subscribe to the stack on Apple Podcasts Spotify and at monaco.com 
Before we go, a little song for you, The Flirts, with their iconic song, Passion. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time.